This is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. On today's program, we're talking about how old bees teach younger bees and about how cocaine addiction might be alleviated by a single molecule in the body. What do those two areas of research have to do with one another? Well, that's what we're here to find out. Every week on Undisciplined, we bring together two researchers from different disciplines to find common ground. Joining us today is Ana Clara Bobadilla, who was born in Argentina, spent most of her life in France, and is now a postdoctoral scholar at the Medical University of South Carolina. Hi, Ana Clara. Hi, how are you? Excellent, thank you. And also with us is Rachel Casper, who loves science, education, travel, and scuba, and is a professional research assistant in the Department of Anesthesiology at the University of Colorado. Hey, Rachel. Hello. First up, the bee biologist. Okay, so we're calling Rachel Casper a bee biologist, but that's just one of many scientific hats she wears. She was the lead author on a recent paper showing the ways in which older bees teach younger bees the tricks of the trade for keeping hives cool, a study that was based on her undergraduate thesis. As an undergrad, she worked in the University of Colorado's Oceans and Climate Lab, and lately she's been working in a medical lab where researchers are trying to identify unique cell phenotypes and interactions in human lungs and the gastrointestinal tract to better understand the effect of microenvironments on viruses and inflammation. Oh my goodness, Rachel, how do all of these things that you do intersect? I think how they intersect for me is that looking at these different individual variations across the board, Honeybees have these individual variations, and yet they still come together as a group to regulate the temperature of the hive. We have our cells and our immune system that come together, that interact in order to maintain a healthy body. And in the ocean as well, well, you also look at climate models, and there's these little subquadrants that talk together as individual subquadrants in order to get a better picture of how our climate is interacting. So tell me about how you got started with bees. How did that happen? Because I heard that you were afraid of bees at one time. (laughs) Yeah, actually growing up, I was definitely afraid of bees, but I loved insects in general. And I think how I got intertwined actually was just trying to dive into the research realm um, in my undergraduate career. And I just fell right into this perfect lab that studied honeybees. And, you know, studying how they regulate the temperature of the hive was just astounding to me, and I thought that was incredibly interesting. And that's called bee fanning, is that right? (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, it's actually technically called thermoregulatory fanning behavior. Yeah, but that's so much more boring than bee fanning. Yeah, (laughs) than bee fanning, yes. Yes, the bees, they, they fan their wings super, super fast in order to circulate the air within the hive to maintain a proper temperature between like 34 and 36 degrees Celsius. And this is primarily in order to keep the baby bees or the brood alive within the hive. And you can actually, you can, you can see this, you can hear this, but you can also feel this if you're close enough to the hive, right? Yeah, that's correct. When it's really, really hot out, especially, that's when they really like to fan. I mean, they fan generally all the time in order to circulate the air within the hive. But when it's super hot, they do this thing that's called bearding. And essentially, it's just all these bees on the front of the hive. And if you get right up close to there, you can feel the air circulating on your face. It's pretty incredible. And you realized at some point that you could use bee fanning behavior to better understand knowledge transfer from older bees to younger bees. Talk about how you carried out that experiment. 
Our other studies that we've conducted showed that these spanners or middle-aged bees can actually cue in on how quickly temperatures are changing, and the more rapid increase, the more likely bees stand together as a group, which demonstrates that larger groups are more efficient at tracking environmental stress or change. But, you know, I was really interested in how we have these individuals, and individuals can vary. And in particular with bees, this is actually dependent on age. So I questioned how the variation in experience could impact the social dynamics of fanning and bees. And particularly with these older bees, you know, they actually are recruiting these younger nurse bees when it's environment, like there's an environmental stress, like when it's getting really hot in the hive in order to efficiently maintain the temperature of that hive. How do you see that? I mean, how do you measure? Because when I think of looking in on a honeybee hive, I see all these swarms of bees. And how do you know that one bee is having a behavior that's having an influence on the other bees? Within a hive, you know, you have like the queen and then she's like the non-sterile female within the hive and you actually have drones that are males. But particularly with the female sterile worker bees, their behavior is directly dependent on their age. So you have these younger bees and then you've got these middle-aged bees, you know, between 10 to 20 days old, and they're the ones who are guarding and fanning, and then you have the foragers, and they're actually between 20 to 30 days old, and they're the ones that we see on the flowers and uh, collecting pollen and nectar and bringing that back to the hive uh, for food. And so, yeah, it's it's directly related to their, their age. Their behavior is directly related to their age. Now, we're talking about bees, but you saw a connection one day while watching people cross a street. Can you talk about that? Yeah. So actually, when we were um, bringing the bees into the lab to study their behavior, this one bee would start to fan and the rest would follow. And I just thought that that was incredibly interesting. Like, what is that variation in the behavior of that initiator? Like, how is that happening? And I was walking across campus one day and I was standing at a crosswalk and the crosswalk had, you know, the don't go sign. And this man walked across the crosswalk uh, when there wasn't any cars and everyone kind of followed him. And I just remember standing there and just thinking, oh, maybe it's like a leader, like a leaders and followers. And then I was like, wait, I'm seeing this in humans and I'm studying honeybees. How incredible is this? So that's how I kind of got this idea of this leader and followership idea. The older bees are essentially being the leaders and the nurses are being the followers to regulate the temperature of the hive. Rachel, this was an undergraduate research project. And now with a little bit more work, it's a published study. You're not even in grad school yet. To bastardize a line from Hamilton, why do you research like you're running out of time? <laughs> I, I love research. And especially when you're passionate about something, particularly with bees with me, I just, I, I love it. And I don't actually really think about the time. I just think about the next step, the next goal about what I want to figure out, what I want to find out, and how I can relay this to the public and get this knowledge out across the world. And what is the next step? What's the research question you're trying to answer right now? Oh, well, <laughs> I, I, ask, I ask that all the time. Um, in particular with the bees, I would kind of question more of this learning behavior, uh, this like self-reinforcement model. You know, these older bees have previously fanned and they are experienced. And how are they actually influencing these younger bees? I mean, we don't exactly know. We don't know if they're actually just seeing them or if they're doing pheromone cues or touching vibration cues. Or like, How do we know that these older bees 
know that they're younger bees. We don't have any idea on how they can actually detect this individual age variation. And I think that that would be a great next step to figuring out what's going on within the honeybee hive. And what's next for you? Grad school is on the horizon, I assume. Yes. Grad school, I would like to get into graduate school by 2020. And um, uh, yeah, that, that's really the, the big thing for me. And I'm still working with bees and some sort of uh, biological uh, system would be amazing. Um, bees in particular with me are just uh, incredible because they are a great model for studying all different types of societies, including ours. And um, I mean, a lot of models assume that individuals have equal likelihood to respond, but bees show that that's not the case. I mean, we know that as in society. And I think studying that, how individuals come together as a group in order to survive would be my particular idea and that I would want to work for towards graduate school, whether that be, you know, bees or something else too. And are you still afraid of bees or is that all gone now? <laughs> That's all gone now. I definitely am not, I'm not scared of bees, but I do have uh, my utmost respect for them for sure. Uh, you know, I mean, they can still, um, you know, sting and stuff. And um, there's, you know, people who are obviously allergic to bees who don't just, like, walk out and pick one up or anything like that. But I definitely um, am not scared of bees anymore, and I have uh, total respect for them. That's Rachel Casper, whose study on honeybee communication and thermoregulation was recently published in the journal Animal Behavior. Rachel, will you stick around for a while to chat more at the end of the show? Absolutely. That is the original pre-Eric Clapton rendition of the iconic song Cocaine by J.J. Kale. Clapton, who made the song famous, has argued that it's actually an anti-drug song. And in that spirit, our next guest has taken what could be a very big step toward helping people experiencing cocaine addiction. She was the lead researcher on a study recently published in the journal Addiction Biology, in which it was shown that an injection of a single protein into the brains of rats could significantly reduce the rate at which they relapsed into cocaine addiction. Anna Clara Bobadilla, this all starts with a protein called brain-derived neurotropic factor, or BDNF. Can you give us a little bit of background? What is BDNF and what does it do in our bodies? BDNF is a small protein that belongs to the family of growth factors. It was first discovered uh, because it has a lot of effects during the development of the central nervous system. It helps the neurons survive, grow, and even differentiate between each other. So we know it's a very important protein. But beyond the role of BDNF in the development, it is also still produced in adult brains. And a lot of studies have shown that it has roles in different disorders, and addiction is one of them. If you expose animals to drugs of abuse, 
you can alter BDNF expression. And the other way around, if you alter BDNF expression, you can change the way that the animals respond to drugs. But because BDNF has huge effects on how the genes are expressed, usually what people have looked at is how BDNF impacts the response to drugs in the long term. And what we have done in the paper that you just mentioned is try to see the very rapid and acute effects of BDNF on this uh, preclinical model of uh, cocaine relapse. And let's talk a little bit about how you set up this study. To make it work, you needed to set up a system in which the rats associated the administration of cocaine with a sound. What does that look and sound like? Uh, so it's just a very like normal sound, not very loud. So it's pretty cool, actually, because when you do it, you realize how smart the, the animals are. You put a rat in a box, and the box has two levers. One that is called the inactive lever. When the animal presses that lever, nothing happens. And then you have the other lever that is the active one. And when the animal presses that lever, it receives a direct intravenous infusion of cocaine with, like you said, cues. So it's like a light and a tone. Uh, very neutral. You know, if you show this to any animal without the experiment, they're not going to do anything about it. But because the cue uh, is going to be there every time the animal gets a cocaine infusion, the animal is going to learn to associate the cues with the cocaine. So for them, every time they have the cocaine and the rewarding effects of the cocaine, they also have the cues. So after they learn that, we switch them to extinction trainings. We put the animals in the same box, the two levers are still there, but the active lever becomes inactive. So uh, nothing happens if they press the lever. And so the first day of extinction, the animals are like, what is happening? Why do do I get more cocaine like I I used to? It must be really frustrating for them. Yes, they are frustrated. And you know what they do also? They test the inactive. They're like, oh, maybe, you know, like the rules have changed. Maybe it's this one. So they start pressing all over. But then the more you do it, the more they learn again that the rules have changed and that there is no point in pressing the lever because they don't get any reward out of it. You know, so it's like wasting energy. So they stop pressing. They still try from time to time, but usually like the lever presses are really decreased. And then when we do the relapse test, this is what is interesting. When they press the active lever or what was the active lever, the cues that are activated, not the cocaine. They don't receive the cocaine anymore, but the cues. But in the mind of the animals, the cues were associated with cocaine. So for them, it's like, oh my God, the cocaine is back. And they start pressing like crazy. So they relapse and they are craving the cocaine when they press the active lever. And are they just like pressing on the lever like crazy? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, they, they just press, press, press. And then, you, of course, like the, the sessions last two hours. So after a while, you know, after you have a peak at 30 minutes, but after, like I said, they're very smart. So they're like, wait a minute, we have the cues, but we don't have the cocaine anymore. So we have what we call a within session extinction. It means that they're going to stop pressing because they see that, okay, the cue is there and that's cool, but we want the cocaine. So (laughs) they, they start decreasing the pressing. So before you go into the relapse stage, some of the rats got an injection of BDNF and others didn't. Is that correct? And what happened next? Correct. So what we did even before starting all the exposure to the drug is we put two cannulas in the brain of the animal. So we just do a hole in the skull and we open two tubes. And then 15 minutes before doing that relapse test that I just described, we target a very specific region in the brain. We put the BDNF in that region of the brain. Then we leave the animals in their home cage for like 10 minutes for them to chill out a little bit. 
And then we put them in the box and we test for the relapse. And we see that the animals who uh, were microinjected BDNF in that very specific region don't relapse compared to the ones that only got a vehicle control solution. So what's going on here? Why does the BDNF impact cocaine-seeking behavior? We thought we were going to get the exact opposite result of what we found because it is known that BDNF facilitates the rewiring of the brain. There is a lot of neuroplasticity in that specific region of the brain during relapse. So the idea was, okay, if we put this BDNF that promotes neuroplasticity, we're going to actually potentiate the, the relapse. We're going to make the animals press more. So I did that, and then we saw exactly the opposite. And so the first thing is like redo the experiment several times just to make sure that there isn't a, a mistake somewhere. And then we, we started to think why and by what mechanism this could be possible. And, and do you have a hypothesis on why and by what mechanism it's possible? So in that specific region that we targeted, it gets activated every time that you do something that is rewarding. And it has a lot of different types of neurons. Mainly, it's composed by two types. They're called the D1 types or the D2 types. And the D stands for dopamine. We know that when you activate uh, the D1 uh, neurons, the D1 pathway, you usually have an overall activation of locomotion and behavior. And when you activate the D2s, you have an inhibition of locomotion and overall motivation. And so what we think is that the BDNF is going to actually activate more strongly the D2 pathway. Okay, so the jump from rats to humans isn't a small one, but this does seem promising. So what are the next steps? So, uh, yes, it is promising, but what we really need to understand is that this is a, f a finding that is very important in basic research, but we're not on the road to apply this tomorrow for clinical application because this is a very invasive procedure. We're actually targeting a very specific region in the brain, and we know that BDNF has huge roles all over the brain, so we don't know what might be the effect if we give BDNF systemically, right? So to apply this to humans, we're pretty far away from that. But what is really cool is that we can actually better understand how abuse exposure rewires the brain and changes the brain and how we can try to, you know, reverse it. And so this is really as much about understanding BDNF as it is about understanding cocaine-seeking behavior, right? Exactly. We are very interested in understanding not only the BDNF, but also how really this cocaine and all the other drugs rewire the brain. That's Anna Clara Bobadilla, whose study on how a single injected protein can impact cocaine-seeking behavior in rats was recently published in the journal Addiction Biology. Anna Clara, can you stick around to chat with us a bit more? Of course. Okay, so this is my favorite part of the program. It's the part in which I get to introduce two brilliant people to one another. Anna Clara Bobadilla, I'd like you to meet Rachel Casper. And Rachel, I'm excited to introduce you to Anna Clara. Hi, Rachel. Hi, nice to meet you. Rachel, can we start with you? You were listening into my conversation with Anna Clara. What didn't I ask that you really wanted to know? I'm kind of wondering how much of this BDNF is part of the conserved like pathway within our brain. Is that something that all of us have uh, equally? Like, do we all have this equal amount of this protein, or does that change? Does that vary person to person? 
It's actually uh, very, very conserved, uh, the gene of BDNF. And what I'm micro-injecting in the brain of rats is actually the sequence of human BDNF, right? And so it works with rats. So that gives you an idea of how much the gene is conserved, right? You can do um, interspecies and it also works. BDNF changes a lot, like I was saying, like during development. So depending on where you measure your BDNF, you're going to have very different results. So what we know is that some clinical studies have shown that the BDNF levels in the serum of cocaine or alcohol-dependent patients are increased compared to control. So we do know that if you have like a long exposure to drugs, you're going to have different BDNF levels. I think it's I think it's especially interesting too. Uh, Actually, with, with bees and like the self-reinforcement learning model, uh, there's been some studies looking with foragers, so the, the, older, the older cast between 20 to 30 days old, and um, they actually can, can train the bee uh, using caffeine or sugar water to come back to the place over and over again. And they've looked at the association with bees and um, you know, uh, caffeine uh, plants and the levels and about how the bee can actually... Uh, they they get used to that caffeine over and over again, and they keep going back to that plant. It's a mechanism between the plant and the bee itself. Um, in order to, you know, uh, pollinate, the bee will come to it, but the bee also gets this caffeine uh, substance, which is pretty remarkable to see that it's also shown in insects um, and compared to, to rats even. I, and it makes me wonder if that BDNF is actually in in bees, and I'm not, I, I honestly am not quite sure, but that's something to think about. Yeah, and I, it's something that I um, realized when you were talking, and I really like what you said about how you now respect the bees very much, and I think that's something that uh, we have in common, is like once you start really working with uh, all these different models, you actually are really impressed <laughs> because I don't know why yeah. we think like we are maybe the smartest species. And then you start looking at how in detail about how all the other um, animals behave and you realize that they're really smart. <laughs> they can do a lot of things that we uh, don't give them credit for. So I really like when you said that you respect them because that's something that I think we, we should all do. <laughs> I totally agree. I, I totally agree. Maybe it's something that doesn't apply at all to your research, but I know that um, the general public uh, has been receiving a lot of alerts about how there is a big decrease in the bees population and how, you know, how the pesticides and everything that we've been using uh, really affects the bees. And so I was wondering if you see that in your research or you have like a very isolated bee population. Yeah, bees are super important, and there's been a lot of uh, concern about the, the loss of bees, especially with agriculture and pollination in particular. Unfortunately, it's also a way of actually how we keep bees. So, you know, we keep bees in these tight quarters and these, these tight hives, and that's fine to a certain extent. But when you start talking about mites and viruses and spread of insecticides and pesticides, it can really hurt the population of honeybees in particular. Honeybees are super important because they're generalists. So they go from uh, bush to bush, flower to flower. And then there's actually native bees that people tend to forget about. There's native bees, there's native wasps that also pollinate. And I think it's important to note that we need to be concerned about all of these pollinators, not just honeybees, the kind that you would think of when you Google honeybee online, but like these other native bees that are also really important. It's always good to have a good, healthy, diverse population of pollinators within an area and not just have it be one species. So that's also of concern. 
to actually explain the difference to the general public and make them understand that we need to protect all of them? Yeah, definitely. That's a new trend that's starting to come along with researchers in particular because a honeybee itself, it could technically be termed as almost like an umbrella species. You protect that species, you're going to be also protecting other pollinators because these other bees and other wasps are also very vulnerable to these different viruses and mites and all these other factors, insecticides, pesticides. So that's one good thing about making sure that everyone has a good picture of what the the species that they're trying to protect is, and that's also very important. I mean, they're so crucial to our ecosystem and to our agriculture. I mean, they're just, they're very important, and they're also very important for research. You know, we study them a lot to understand how other societies work. They're overall just very crucial, very crucial to us. I love how excited you guys are about your research, and I hate to do this, but I have to cut this off because we're running out of time. Anna Clara Bobadilla, thank you so much for joining us on Undisciplined. Thank you for having me. And Rachel Casper, thank you. Thank you so much. If you'd like to participate in this discussion, you can engage with us on Twitter by following us at SoUndisciplined. Undisciplined is produced by Utah Public Radio. Our producer is Alyssa Roberts. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot, and I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas. forces that shape everything in the universe are the same as the forces that are shaping who we are and what our identity is. On the next Radio Lab, Xenon, Hydrogen, Carbon, Iron, Uranium and Thorium, Lithium, CCM and Plutonium, Helium, Elements, they literally move mountains, and us. I mean, gratitude is like not even the word. That's on the next Radio Lab. Saturday at noon on UPR.